Hey everyone, this is Tony here, producer at Life of the Law. I am here with a quick announcement before the episode. But first, have you ever wondered how you can contribute to Life of the Law? Or maybe you've donated in the past and you're ready to give again. Well, guess what? We are announcing our next live storytelling event, Live Law. This February 23rd, it will be at a place called the Russian Center of San Francisco. And we're calling this event of live storytelling, Life of the Law Initial Public Offering. We have done several live laws in the past, but this will be our first evening of stories around tech and the law. So if you want to give to Life of the Law, you should buy a ticket to this event. Here's our lineup of storytellers. Please listen, it's ridiculous. Marcus Thompson, lead columnist over at The Athletic, he wrote a book called Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry will be there. Local Oakland Grammy Award-winning musician and friend of the show, Fantastic Negrito, will be there. Digital storyteller Riddy Shaw, formerly of Medium and Huff Post, co-host and producer of the podcast Nancy, Kathy too will be joining us. Also local muralist, Saran Norris, and two additional surprise guests will be there that night. So if you want to support Life of the Law, you need to buy tickets to this event. Go to our website, go to our Facebook, find the Buy Tickets button, uh, and buy some. Even if you're not in the area, you can totally buy tickets, and we will pass them on. And if you're in the area, we have a big venue, at least way larger than what we've ever done in the past. So if you are in the area, you should come out, have a drink, and listen to some amazing live storytelling. When you come, the signing of the full, the, the, the peace agreement, we got stuck. The ICC became the main obstacle between the peace talk. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullion, executive producer. And as you know from our last episode, part one of our series on Uganda, which was called Abducted, we are leaving our comfort zone of the United States and laws in the United States, and we're going to another country, uh, Uganda, which is in East Africa. And we're taking a look at how the laws work or don't work, how the international community plays a role in those laws um, when things go really badly. Um, and our story began with part one. And if you haven't listened to part one, I really encourage you to stop here, go back and listen. Go to our website or go to iTunes and listen to part one. It was called Abducted. And in part one, we followed the lives of two of the 60,000 children who were abducted by rebels with the Lord's Resistance Army, led by a man named Joseph Coyne. The two children we follow are Samuel, who was abducted at the age of 11, and Beatrice, who was abducted at the age of 15. After they were abducted, Samuel and Beatrice were both taken, like many of the children, to southern Sudan, where they were held captive for years in the LRA's camps, um, where they were forced to loot and kill 
um, and the girls were raped and forced to act as captive wives and bear the children of the commanders. And so we left the story in part one with this kind of desperate attempt by the parents to get their children back. Our reporter Gladys Aroma, who's based in Gulu, Uganda, where many of the abductions took place over 20 years, um, she takes us in part two to the attempts by the international community to find some kind of resolution and the attempts by the international courts to get involved and by the parents' attempts to form some kind of activist organization to reach out to their children and ask them to come home. We do want to warn you, some of the story you're about to hear you may find disturbing. Part two, escape. By the late 1990s and the early 2000s, more than a decade after Joseph Kony and the rebels with the Lord's Resistance Army began abducting children and killing people in northern Uganda, little was being done by the Ugandan government to stop the violence. The political situation in Uganda was and is still a divided uh, situation. Most of the motion raised by the government in combating the LRA forces were in most cases not supported by the opposition leaders. Because of that differences, they would conflict. And this alone contribute also to the sustainability of the LRA. Ukwi Isaac is the head of Justice and Reconciliation Project. He says political divisions within Uganda made combating the LRA and ending the war in northern Uganda difficult. The political leaders were not united in as far as combating the LRA forces. This gave a leeway to the LRA to, 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 to remain in, uh, in, in committing atrocities in carrying out their operation. If the Ugandan government was unable to stop the LRA's violence, what was the international community doing to protect the people, the children of Uganda from the LRA's terror? It wasn't until the mid-90s, more than a decade after LRA began abducting thousands of children, that the international community began to pay attention. People were greatly concerned about the practice of forced marriage and the knowledge that a number of women were being held long-term in the LRA and forced to act as wives and give birth to the children of senior commanders. Erin Brains is a professor at the University of British Columbia and is a co-founder of the Justice and Reconciliation Project. Baines and the project worked directly with parents of abducted children and communities to get international leaders to pay attention to what was happening in Uganda. Ultimately, Baines says it was activism by the parents, sending messages to the children over radio stations, putting out leaflets that got the attention of people all over the world. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and this is Radio Mega FM in Gulu. 
And on our radio program this afternoon, this tonight, we shall have uh, our returnees from the jungle who was abducted in 1998. The real actor and leader in this was actually Canada. In 2000, Canada stepped in to pressure regional players to withdraw their support for the LRA. Canada, um, during the World Conference on War-Affected Children in 2000, came up with a deal um, with the, the Sudanese government to try and um, withdraw its support to the rebel groups and help release the children. In 2001, after the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center, Bain says the U.S. took an interest in Uganda and listed the LRA as a terrorist organization. I think the Americans uh, approached the war in northern Uganda by building a strong alliance with the Ugandan uh, government and military as they saw this as a wider threat to peace and security in the region, particularly after September 2001, where they recognized a number of the uh, groups involved in the attacks in the United States had been taking refuge and training in the region primarily in Sudan. So the U.S.'s response was largely like to try and broker peace within the region, bring stability to the region as a primary focus. Getting the children out was a secondary one. By the time the U.S. stepped in, thousands of children had been abducted and were still living in LRA captivity. But now the children had grown, they were young adults with children of their own born in captivity. After years with the LRA, and after being sexually abused and forced to fight, forced to loot, and participate in mutilation and abductions, the children were both feared and afraid. It was, I would describe it as very hard to live in condition. Okwe Isaac of Justice and Reconciliation Project says for people living in northern Uganda, life was terror because the LRA operation was too much. And the civilian populations, I would say, were at the mercy of the LRA. To try and protect people in northern Uganda from more violence and abductions by the LRA, in the mid-90s, the Ugandan government began establishing what they called Internally Displaced People's Camp, or IDPs. The camps were guarded by Ugandan soldiers, but there were problems. Because while people were living in IDP camp, they were still being attacked, people were still being abducted by the rebels, people were still being killed, people's properties were still being looted uh, from IDP camp. By 2006, more than 2 million Ugandans, or 7% of the country's population, lived in IDP camps. Inside the camps, People survived on not enough food, donated by non-governmental relief organizations. And leaving the camp to find water or food was nearly impossible. So the situation was still very bad. Roads were inaccessible. You cannot move with northern Uganda from one district to another district. By seven, you cannot even go and fetch water. So the rebels were everywhere. As the LRA continued to abduct children throughout northern Uganda, they killed those who tried to escape. Still, thousands of children who had been abducted and held captive for months and years risked their lives trying to escape LRA captivity. 
When the LRA was engaged in battles with the Ugandan troops, some saw the battle as their chance to escape and either surrendered or were captured by government soldiers. Samuel Akena was abducted at the age of 11. I escaped because of my friend. The three of us started planning while we were in South Sudan. After four years in captivity with the LRA in southern Sudan, Samuel says he escaped in 2004 when he was sent on a mission to locate firearms buried in northern Uganda. They selected the three of us among the many to come to Uganda to locate the firearms which were hidden at the border. We came and stayed in Uganda for some time. Then Kony ordered that all his escort be sent. By then, I was not working as a signaller, but I could hear what other signallers were discussing. I told my friend, and he said we should not return to southern Sudan. We met the other friend, and I told him that people are returning. Instead of returning to southern Sudan, Samuel and his friends escaped. It was during rainy seasons, so it started raining. It would rain from 4 a.m. up to midday. We were beaten by the rain and nobody was thinking about one another. There was a gap in our movement. The three of us were walking together, so we were saying, since there is a big gap between us and we want to escape, and we escaped, and the three of us all had handguns. Beatrice Ochoe was abducted by the LRA rebels from her uncle's home in northern Uganda when she was 15. In 2002, after more than seven years in captivity, Beatrice saw her opportunity to escape when she was sent on a mission to Lord Ford. I escaped when we were in Uganda because there was fighting in Uganda between the LRA and the government army and most of the rebels were in Uganda. When Beatrice was abducted in 1995, she and other children were forced to walk from northern Uganda to the LRA's permanent compound in southern Sudan. On the long march, Beatrice says she was raped by Okot Odiambo, one of the LRA's top commanders. When her group reached the LRA compound in southern Sudan, Odiambo made her one of his captive wives. Joseph Kony, the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, was able to establish an LRA compound in southern Sudan because the Sudanese government offered the LRA refuge in a mutually beneficial arrangement. The Sudanese government was engaged in a 20-year war with another rebel army known as the Sudanese People's Liberation Army, or SPLA. The SPLA was fighting for independence from the Sudanese government. The Sudanese government offered to give the LRA refuge and provide them with support, and in exchange, the LRA would battle the SPLA for control of southern Sudan. The Ugandan government was also providing support to the SPLA. But in 2002, the LRA's relationship with the Sudanese government began to fray. The Sudanese government met with the Ugandan government and agreed to allow Ugandan troops in 2000 Sudan to carry out attacks against the LRA and capture the LRA's leader, Joseph Kony. Three years later, in 2005, 
The Sudanese government and the SPLA ended their 21 years of conflict and together they ordered the LRA out of southern Sudan. With Ugandan troops in pursuit of the LRA in southern Sudan, thousands of LRA commanders and soldiers began to fight their way back into northern Uganda, bringing their captive wives and children with them. So when we left Sudan, we had mothers whose children were crying. Sometimes government troops and helicopter gunship would be moving and you, the mothers, they are seeing you. So I was thinking of escaping. I pray to God that God protect me. Pregnant with her second child from her first marriage to an LRA commander and desperate to feed her first child born in LRA captivity, Beatrice went in search of food. So when we reached Gulu, we moved towards Pora. When we reached there, we were told to go and look for food in the villages. I told them I was going to look for food because I had nothing for my child. They allowed me to go. As soon as she had enough distance from the LRA, Beatrice says she sought refuge from her home in the village. When it reached midnight, I escaped from them and I prayed to God not to make my child to cry. They moved forward and I moved backward. I went to a home of a certain woman and knocked on her door. And when she came out, I told her not to fear me and that I have a child and I had escaped with everything plus my gun. For years, Beatrice says she wanted to escape, but until that night, she was too afraid to try. When I was still in captivity, my fear was that I was going to be killed, and that's why I took long to escape. Fear of being killed was my problem. Beatrice says she wasn't only afraid of what the LRA would do to her if they caught her trying to escape. She was also terrified of what the Ugandan troops would do to her if she surrendered to them or was captured. I saw people who were killed while trying to escape and I had that in my mind. When the government forces get you, they would kill you and sometimes they would rape you and give you disease. When we came back home, we found it happened to people who escape before us. We like it happened to one of the ladies. We hailed from the same place. She escaped in 1998. It was government forces who received her. She was raped and infected with disease, but she was not killed. She said every soldier she got there had raped her. While he was in LRA captivity, Samuel says Joseph Cohn and the LRA commanders indoctrinated all the children, telling them now that they were with the LRA, if Ugandan soldiers caught them, they would kill them whether they were trying to escape from the LRA or not. The fear we had, for example, when Cohn was training us, he used to tell us that anybody captured while escaping, the government troops would kill them. That is what he used to tell all the soldiers, because we are the one fighting them. And when we try to escape, they will kill us. Like some of us who had stayed there for two or three years, and since you are young, you will fear that they will kill us. And that is what we had been thinking.
Then in 2006, Joseph Kony, the leader of the LRA, asked the Ugandan government to meet with the LRA in Juba in southern Sudan for peace talks. Mr. Kony, what did you what did you discuss, with Mr. Egon? We talk about this. We discussed about peace talks, which is taking place in Juba. The Juba peace talks from 2006 to 2008 were a series of talks, truces, and more talks to try to reach an agreement to end 20 years of conflict between the LRA rebels, the Ugandan government, and the Ugandan people. Evelyn Amon spent 11 years in captivity as one of the LRA leaders Joseph Coyne's captive wives. She authored the book, I Am Evelyn Amon, Reclaiming My Life from the Lord's Resistance Army, about her experience in the LRA. During the peace talks, Evelyn acted as a liaison between the Ugandan government and the LRA rebels. People were afraid that the rebels were deceiving them. The Ugandan government asked Evelyn to participate on the government's team. They claimed she had a better understanding of the rebel leader's behavior. Joseph Cohn and the LRA also relied on Evelyn to explain the government's intent at the talks. When we arrived, they called me to inquire things like, like who are the people who came, whether they were serious about the talks or if there was anything harmful that would harm them, which the government delegations came with. I kept assuring them that the government had no bad intention and that they were serious about the peace talks. I told them the government seriously needed peace. Two years before the Juba peace talks began, the LRA was in retreat from southern Sudan back into northern Uganda. Evelyn says she was able to escape her long captivity with the LRA when they came under attack by the Ugandan troops. Evelyn says during the battle, she and one of her co-wives, Margaret, were with an LRA commander when the Ugandan soldiers began firing on them. She had recently given birth and she was with her older child as well. As she and her children and the others came under fire, Evelyn lifted her newborn baby over her head to surrender. But the Ugandan government soldiers continued firing on them, with bullets passing on either side. One bullet, she says, passed through her skirt. Evelyn says after Margaret Hakowai fell to the ground, government soldiers approached Margaret and shot her. She was injured, but she survived. The Ugandan soldiers then walked towards Evelyn, his gun raised. As he got closer, Evelyn says he lowered his gun, arrested her and the others, and led them to the government's base in northern Uganda. The government troops handed Evelyn off to a rehabilitation center to be reintegrated with her family. But months later, the Ugandan army arrested her and put her in prison. After spending time in a prison, a government representative came and told her one of Joseph Coyne's demand to attend the peace talk was to see Evelyn and three of her co-wives. Evelyn was given a few hours to prepare for the journey. A government convoy drove Evelyn and the other wives to the LRA base in Congo to meet Coyne. Evelyn was nervous. It would be the first time she would come face to face with Joseph Cohn since she had been captured by the government more than a year before. It was not easy for me in the beginning because I myself had escaped from Cohn. It was not easy at first. Cohn himself told me, now they have returned you to me and you will not go back. And I was thinking about what exactly to say to him. A number of Uganda's religious leaders members of parliament, traditional leaders, civil society organization, and government officials were represented at the Juba peace talks. Alim Santa is 59 years. 
She lives in a small village in northern Uganda. Alim says the LRA abducted three of her seven children. All three died in LRA captivity. Imagine three of my children have been abducted, two boys and a girl, none of them came back. We had even resolved to carry out a burial ritual because they are no longer there. Some have been missing for 25 years now. Some people say they are dead. I got reports that two have died but one. The last one who was abducted last, who has now spent 18 years in the bush is the one that I haven't heard about his death but the two, I have heard that they are dead. When people were asked to participate in the peace talks, Alim says no one asked her to share her voice, her story. No, it wasn't. Because no one came to us, we were just left there, abandoned. We as parents, no one came to listen to our views. Some parents went also there. So I think our voices were, were represented. Phoebe Okello is co-founder of the Concerned Parents Association, the organization that was created by parents whose daughters were abducted from St. Mary's College, Aboke, a Catholic boarding school. LRA rebels attacked the school and captured 139 girls. The headmistress of the school, Anan, followed the rebels to the bush and pleaded for the girls' release. The LRA released 109 and took 30 into captivity. Phoebe says the chairperson of the association, Angelina Atiam, traveled north to speak for the parents. Angelina, our chairperson, went, but she did not reach where the rebels were. The parents secured the release of some of the children abducted by the LRA. But Okello says, not all. We were seeking for unconditional release of all the children in captivity. It's difficult, but I, I feel at least our information, we are reaching them and we are talking on the release of all the children. Pedro Ugandans, let's give peace a chance. It is time. After two years of peace talks, the LRA rebels and the Ugandan government negotiated a draft of agreements, which included the cessation of hostilities between the warring parties an end to conflict. But the agreements for the comprehensive peace were never signed. When you come, the signing of the full, the, the, the peace agreement, we got stuck. Yusuf Adek is the traditional chief of one of the several chiefdoms of the Choli people in northern Uganda. He was one of a number of Ugandan community representatives who took part in the peace talks. Yusuf says, the talks and the draft peace agreement collapsed when it became clear to Joseph Cohn and the LRA that no one had the authority to negotiate for the International Criminal Court in The Hague. To explain the role of the ICC, we have to go back. In 2002, Uganda ratified and became a member of the Rome Statute, the founding treaty that created the International Criminal Court. Under the statute, the ICC can investigate and prosecute four international crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes of aggression, when member states are unable or unwilling to do so themselves. In December 2003, Uganda's President Museveni referred the conflict in Uganda with the LRA to the ICC. 
The ICC took the referral, and in 2005, the year before Cohn asked for the Juba peace talks, the ICC issued arrest warrants for Joseph Cohn and four of his top commanders, including Commander Odiambo, who had taken Beatrice as one of his captive wives. These five warrants would be the first issued by the ICC since the court was signed into law in 1998. As one of the terms for signing the Juba Peace Agreement, Coyne demanded Ugandan President Museven to withdraw his referral to the ICC and for the ICC to withdraw the warrant rest for crimes against humanity and war crimes. Coyne saying, let Museven first withdraw the ICC, then I will sign the final signatory in the peace talk. And then the government also saying, let Coyne find sign first. Then I will take the matter to United Nations to a security council to suspend the ICC. But Museven's hands were tied. As a member of the Rome Statute, Uganda was obliged to arrest four LRA commanders sought by the ICC. President Yoru Museveni has on many public occasions locally and abroad spoken out strongly against the ICC, saying the World Court had been hijacked by forces hell-bent on prosecuting African leaders. He argued that many other people in Europe and elsewhere had committed crimes within the ICC's jurisdiction, but had gone scot-free. And according to the Rome Statute, once a member has referred a conflict to the ICC, only the prosecutor or the ICC has the authority to withdraw the charges. The ICC arrest warrants and charges were not withdrawn. To our people here, they see the coming in of the ICC to be very close to a kind of a sabotage. Sabotage? Yes. A coalition of the organization in northern Uganda, spearheaded by the influential religious leaders, criticized the ICC for interfering in their efforts to end the 20 years of war peacefully. As much as they committed atrocities, they were also taken against their will. And we all failed to protect them. A delegation of Ugandan legislators, religious and cultural leaders, traveled to The Hague to try to convince the ICC to withdraw the warrants against the LRA leaders, but the ICC prosecutor refused. The ICC became the main obstacle between the peace talks. One of the reasons for the failure of the talks is Joseph Kony um, perceived there to have been a great betrayal within the LRA. Erin Baines is a professor at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, and attended the peace talks. She says the ICC wasn't the only reason the talks failed. The talks also failed because the LRA Joseph Cohn felt he had been betrayed by his second-in-command. His second-in-command had apparently brokered some other kind of side deal he was not aware of, and so he uh, he had killed uh, Vincent O.T., his second-in-command. That murder led to uh, the withdrawal of the LRA altogether. Whether it was the arrest warrant or the perceived betrayal and murder of his second-in-command, after the collapse of the peace talks in 2008, Joseph Coyne moved his war from northern Uganda to the Central African Republic and the Democratic Republic of Congo, abducting and killing people in the neighboring countries. In northern Uganda, rehabilitation centers were opening to support people who had escaped from the LRA or who had been captured in battles with the Ugandan government. The centers were set up to help people recover from the trauma of their abduction and captivity. 
The first day I arrived at the center after I was transferred from the barracks, I started getting happiness because I met some of the women we were with already at the center. After Beatrice Ochwe escaped from the LRA, Ugandan troops took her to a World Vision Trauma Center. They warmly welcomed me and helped me to carry my baby. People who worked at the center were very excited when they saw me. Everybody came around me. They were smiling and encouraged me to forget the past because I was going to see people. I was very excited and they immediately called my mother and the following day my parents came to see me. Beatrice felt safe, but she also felt useless to her community. A month after she reached the center, she gave birth to a second child, conceived in captivity. When I was returning, I did not consider myself important anymore, and I would not do anything in Uganda. I gave birth to children from captivity. At the center, Beatrice says they received medical attention and counseling. I was fearing that people would be stigmatizing me. So when I reached World Vision Center, counselors helped to rehabilitate me. They told me I and my children were still useful, that I was still able to do good things and I should have hope in life. So my rehabilitation started from World Vision. And when I returned home, my mother supported me and encouraged me to have hope because they would help me to raise my children. Beatrice says the center treated women who were abducted and who bore children conceived in captivity with care. We were treated differently. There was plenty of food for the child before the normal meal time, and as a mother, they treat you well compared to someone who does not have a child. They always tell us that mothers are different and they should not take it as if we don't love others. Even from homes, mothers were to be kept well. The centers in northern Uganda provided rehabilitation and skills training. Two months after she arrived at the center, Beatrice says she was told it was time to go home. After I had stayed at the center for two months, they told us they were going to discharge us so that we leave that place for other people. When she left the center, Beatrice says they gave her provisions and then handed her over to her parents. They called our parents and told them that World Vision was going to hand over their children to them. They put us in the vehicle to take us home. They gave us one bag of 50 kilograms of beans and maize flour each, one tin of cooking oil, mattresses for the mothers and their children. Beatrice says she did not receive any financial support from the center, and that made her return home with her children difficult. I did not have any money to kickstart life at home. They should have supported me because I had children, and they would have helped me to sponsor my children at school and give me business after training me, or now to run a business to raise money to support my children in terms of catering for my children, health, clothing, and paying rent.
Petra says the World Vision Trauma Center told her when they got more funding they would let her know, but that never happened. They told me that there was no money to do such kind of things and we should first come back home. When they get funding, they were going to call us back. So I went back home and up to now, they have not yet called me back. What I received from there was not enough, but they look at it as if it was enough. They should have supported me more when I had returned home and started leaving us a mother at home. Like Beatrice Ochoe, Akena Samuel spent time at the World Vision Trauma Center in Gulu. The first day we arrived at World Vision, we were warmly welcomed because there was nothing wrong like stigmatization. They were asking me how I was abducted and how I stayed in the captivity. Samuel says the center monitored his behavior and they realized he was not violent. Unlike some formerly abducted children, he paid attention to instructions. On the first day we reached the center, we were given blankets and mattress, and they removed my clothes and gumboots. I returned with and gave me slippers. During his first week at the center, Samuel says he was constantly checked for health complications. What they did for us first was to ask if I had any problem, for example, if you have bullets in your bodies or any injuries and other sicknesses were the things they were asking for and they would take you for treatment in the hospital. After one week, they were checking on us if we have any sicknesses. They used to counsel us over what we experienced in the bush and that what I saw. And also they provided meals for us on a daily basis from World Vision. Samuel says he asked the center to help him go back to school. I told them to help me to continue with my education because I had requested them to take me back to school and they told me they were going to take me when I returned home. I did not go back. After one week at the center, Samuel says the administrator sent him home. They told me that they would follow me. The Ugandan government worked with donors to reconstruct the districts in northern Uganda most affected by the conflict. The Peace Recovery Development Program built schools, roads and hospitals and created programs to help people impacted by the war. Another initiative, funded by the Belgium government, constructed a school to provide formerly abducted children with formal education and vocational skills. During the time they were opening Laro boarding school, I had thought World Vision was the one that gave the information because they were saying children who returned from captivity were needed to go to study at the school. Local leaders were tasked with registering formerly abducted people in the school. Samuel says he was never contacted. They sent the information to the local councillor of the particular area. The local leaders, instead of working 
when the people who returned from captivity, they were giving it to their relatives. So I failed to follow up everything. Back in 2000, before Sudan ordered the LRA out of Southern Sudan, before the International Criminal Court issued arrest warrants for Joseph Kony and four of his commanders, before the Juba peace talks collapsed, Ugandan parliament passed a bill offering amnesty to LRA rebels in an attempt to end the conflict. The legislation was initially in force for six months with a provision for an extension. To claim amnesty, LRA rebel fighters had to surrender to government forces, admit they had been at the war with the government, and they had to hand over their weapons. In return, they would receive an amnesty certificate, and they would not be prosecuted or held accountable for their participation in the LRA. Some who were abducted by the LRA as children, who were forced to fight and survive in LRA captivity, denounced the LRA and were given amnesty certificates. amnesty. They brought some officials from Amnesty. They came and took our photos and gave us Amnesty card. They told us they took our photos to show that they are forgiven us because of the war that we fought from the bush. Amono Lillian is now 35. In 1992, LRA rebels raided her home and abducted her at the age of nine. Amono spent 10 years in captivity with the LRA rebels. Today, Amono says she has nothing to be forgiven for. One day we sat down and asked ourselves, how do they say they are forgiven us, yet we are the ones supposed to forgive the government for not protecting us from the rebels? Amono received a certificate of amnesty from the government, but she wonders if it is the Ugandan government that needs forgiveness from those who were abducted. We were debating because they failed to protect us and we suffered in captivity. So how can they say they are forgiven us? But they are saying they are forgiven us. To me, that is not right. It is the government to come and apologize to us. For Life of the Law, I am Gladys Oroma in Gulu, Uganda. Escape, part two of our series Uganda, was reported by Gladys Oroma. To hear more about Gladys and her work and to access links to our background research on Uganda, the audio archive, and the music you heard, visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Our three-part series is produced in partnership with Annie Bunting from York University in Toronto, Teddy Atim, researcher in Kampala, Uganda, and Life of the Law's senior producer, Tony Gannon. Additional support by Daphne Keevil Harold. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane. Each time we publish a new episode, we send everyone who's subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters and news about upcoming investigative reports. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Our series, Uganda, is funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council, the National Science Foundation, the Law and Society Association, and by you, our listeners. Join us in two weeks 
when we present part three, Justice. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. Nen langi kengi gigi kagi neki, nen tima towa tumada.